I have a book where there's a bunch of dwarves in a mountain, and I had almost 500 words of describing how there was this ventilation system and these pipes running through the mountain, and so all the smoke from their cooking fires and the forges and stuff, instead of building up inside the city, would run through these pipes and be vent vented out to the surface. Um, it was like, you know, two whole pages of the book, and, you know, a, a beta reader, you know, pointed out to me that it was extremely boring, and it just completely cut the pace of the book. So that two pages became smoke from the torch wafted through a bronze pipe jutting from the wall. That's it. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real made-up things. I'm your host, Tyler, and you'll be joining me in a discussion on info dumps, the necessity for the all-elusive realism, and the pros and cons on having a complex background to your setting. Today joining me are BK, Immokinate, and Inky. If you'd be so kind, just introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm BK Bass. I am an author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, a publisher, and the writing chair at Worldbuilding Magazine. Hello, hello. I am a Mechanate, also known as ENR Natividad. I'm the editorial chair here at World Building Magazine, and I'm also a editor and writer. Glad to be here. Hello, uh, I'm Inky. I'm one of the layout artists, uh, illustrators here at World Building Magazine, and I'm yeah, a designer and illustrator. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining me today. Um, and yes, the the all elusive real name being used to go with our episode on realism. It just felt appropriate to have the switch. Um, <clears throat> so if you guys have any idea, for me, I feel like one of the things I always find people falling into is this concept of realism, which is they which most people purport is how believable and earth-like your setting is, though I find that doesn't necessarily tend to be true when you search for realism. Instead, I kind of find it more to be this pseudo set of guidelines that people fault themselves into believing that this is the way that they have to build their world. And I think that they miss out on a lot of opportunities for interesting world building because they, they believe that can't happen in real life, even though, as I think we purported quite a few times, the earth is perhaps the most arbitrary and random of creators so what do you guys believe on the idea of being trapped in realism i think um you know some people might you know like you said they, they feel like they've got to make every aspect of the world realistic um and they end up just kind of copying you know what's realistic in our reality um but when you start looking at like future technologies or magic um you know uh, metaphysical laws things like that you can go outside the box quite a bit. And I think the big thing to make that realistic within the confines of your own world is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast here is um, internal consistency, uh, where if you just, you know, make rules and make sure what you put into the world makes sense according to those rules, then you should have a realistic feeling setting, even if it's not realistic as far as our world. I think you touched on something I like is that it's, it's not realistic as our world goes, but it is believable. It's the plausibility, I feel, 
that people should shoot for, not the realism, because you'll never really be able to fully encapsulate our world as a setting. But you get damn near close. I think what I find rather funny is that the rules here on Earth are supposed to support whatever fantastical thing you have in your world and that that is more the realism we are talking about here because um, I think if we just go by what would happen in this world or our world, I don't think that people touch there a lot. It's more like I need to know how to, how would dragons fly and stuff like this. So um, I think it's a different level of realism than let's say how do actual things work here on earth and how would you alter them or to make a similar thing happen in your world with slightly different parameters. I'm going to I agree with both Inky and what BK said. Um, BK is with the whole internal consistency point. And for Inky's forum, I think what she was uh, getting to was understanding. Because if you as a world builder don't really understand how your world operates in a sense, it becomes monumentally more difficult to explain that to someone, to your audience, to someone who doesn't know your world. Um, and because of how human knowledge works, it just so happens that what we see and what we witness and what we understand in real life is kind of a good model for how to do our world building because we already know how it works. And so we can get around the kind of semantics of explaining how said thing works to other people. Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, like a, um, like the two points, either the internal consistency versus the grounded in reality, like our reality. You, know, you can use the, the grounding in our reality as a framework to have things make sense to your audience, and then you can start branching out from there. So there's definitely, uh, you know, both points are, are important to keep in mind. It, it reminds me of um, the concept of, of having a character that you can relate to, kind of like how in a lot of the Lord of the Rings, the characters relate to are the hobbits, especially Merry and Pippin, when they're viewing the world building of the races of men through their hobbit eyes, even through what they know about Isengard and the, and the Ents, they all kind of see it through eyes that know nothing about this beforehand, kind of like us. And they come from essentially England, kind of like, well... Tolkien's from South Africa and I'm from Rhode Island. So not like anything like either of us, but like some from people with from England, they're like that. Um, I think the further you divorce your setting from reality, you kind of fall into this path where the farther you go down, the harder it's going to be to explain something to people. If you change everything that we know, then we have to learn everything again. And that that adds a huge barrier of, of entry to your setting, one that you just normally can't find a way to easily cart them in with, unless you of course go the Narnia route and put a bunch of children in from earth. Um, but you know, what having a narrative in your world building, what is this? I, it's a strange concept. I know. I know. I personally don't have one. I think it's for fools. So <laughs> uh, um, anyways, so I think we'll get right up to the idea of what we're trying to talk about here with the iceberg principle and how you have to give them just the tip. Mm. 
you have to kind of go ahead and show a little bit and have a lot so that way things can be explored and digressed upon later. And that doesn't mean that everything has to be totally fleshed out. That iceberg could be a meter thick and that's it. But it's the idea that something could be there. You're teasing the idea that this isn't just a little bit poking out of the water. It, there's a whole lot of icy hard girth beneath it. Yeah, a big thing with the iceberg principle is, um, you know, you have basically whatever's under the water, you know, the, you know, if you look at a real iceberg, you know, just a little bit is floating above the water, but there's a lot below. So when you're building this world and you have like these detailed histories and lore and cosmology and all this stuff, um, you know, that, that's all the foundation that ties it all together and going back to the internal consistency. Um, but you just show the little details. So the, the author or the, the GM, the, the world builder, you know, whatever your application is, knows how everything works, how everything's tied together, and that gives you that consistency. Um, but then you just show your audience the little details that are relevant in the moment. BK, as a uh, publisher, um, what are some interesting ways that you've seen people try to display their world with the iceberg principle? Like, is there one way that you think works best, or is it more of a, it's a multifaceted beast? There's definitely different ways you can go about it, and I've seen different approaches. The, the most successful one I've seen, and it's the, you know, and, and I might be partial because this is the way that I write, is um, just to show little details in the moment from the character's perspective. Um, so like if you have, um, you know, like this, this big trade system where you have, you know, or like a trade hub, like a city where you have people from different cultures and stuff, instead of explaining that you have all these people from different cultures and they're there because they're trading, you just have them walk through the market and they're like, oh, look, there's somebody that looks one way and somebody looks a different way and different kinds of clothing and things like that. Um, so you just show those, those little details and kind of let the, the audience infer, um, the bigger picture from that interesting ways i've seen a lot of interesting ways but not all of them good um you know and and you know info dumping is bad you don't want to do that i've seen people start the, like the first chapter of the book being like an entire encyclopedic entry about the creation of the world and how it evolved and the gods and this that and the other and it it's like uh like a summary like a cliff's notes of greek mythology is the first chapter of their novel it's like you don't want to do that it's like they're front-loading the inform the background information of the setting, so that way you get it all at once. But generally, in my experience, at least as a reader, you you don't tend to need most of that information. Um, at like at, at any point, unless it's plot relevant, and like I love it when it is. Like the entire concept of Morgoth and the Maiar and all that is really fascinating. In Lord of the Rings, but it's not really necessary for Lord of the Rings to be good. Like Sauron can just be a powerful entity and like Gandalf a wizard and, and it makes sense. It doesn't need to be there, but it's interesting that it is. So I find that when they front load with, with info dumps, it just, it, it is awful. I, I, I find a hard time getting through stuff like that and I love info dumps, but when you front load it, you kind of, you lose something, I think. Yeah, that's definitely the worst place to put it. I mean, if you have to, have exposition, just don't start with it. Scattering it out is definitely the best way to do it. And, you know, mixing it into things like dialogue or, um, you know, visual cues or something somebody smells or something like that. You know, like I said, those, those in the moment experiences are the best way to convey that information. And I, I've got some notes that we're going to probably talk about later on some other ways to go about that. Oh, I mean, I remember from 
uh, a lot of uh, hobby comic artists um, who literally they didn't have any frames or any or any panels they literally had i don't know five pages at least just info dumping their lore or whatever they had for their story uh, at the very first and it was that you don't want to read through this because usually it was also not very visually interesting or like appealing because it was I don't know a black background and red font and which is yeah. also terrible to read and um, yeah and you don't have a visual support that breaks it up or anything that kind at least and um, that really stuck in my head and you don't want to do that you really don't want to do this. And I think, yeah, basically spreading out info dumps and, or not having them at all, and just weaving it into the experience of the characters is, I think, a much better approach because you want to usually experience what you're world building and not just like, I mean, sometimes you want to read a Wikipedia article but that you could do on i don't know what anvil or something but if you want to like have really engaging world building you usually don't do info dumps yeah uh large bits of expository and lore information can be a big ask for your audience uh whether it's a reader or someone uh kind of reading your comic, whether it's for like a book or a comic, as Inky pointed out, there's world building in different media, of course. Um, it's a big ask. And I think that touches on the point of making something that's compelling, which relates to what BK said, those experiences that we as people can relate to. And so I think to kind of add to it, to say that never info dump, you can eventually do that. Um, I think Tyler brought up the point of uh, Tolkien pretty much doing some info dumping about his characters. And I'm pretty sure I think was the Silma, 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 Rillian was a massive info dump of itself. Isn't that like info dump the book? Please correct me if I'm wrong. It's more like it's like ecclesiastical style writing like a historian would. It's it's nuts. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. The thing about the Silmarillion was that... Um... J.R.R. Tolkien never intended to publish that. That was that was basically his world-building notebook. And then his son, Christopher, and the, uh, the estate manager, they got a hold of it and polished it up and put it out there. So they basically published, he published his dad's world-building notebook in prose form. Mm -hmm. And by that point, people knew this world, this universe. And so they were compelled, or at least some of them were compelled to read these um, this lore bible so it's that thing that you kind of work for but you don't necessarily start with because there has to be a, a reason for someone to indulge in that work of kind of to that level of deep detail until that, that level of caliber of detail um i personally as someone who likes uh perusing different wikis reading up on the lores of different worlds i rarely ever start that journey as someone just discovering a world 
Um, my example is Game of Thrones. I never watched the Game of Thrones. I haven't read the books. However, I am weirdly knowledgeable of some parts of that world just because I have been kind of exposed to the plot, um, to the good plot of, uh, of the shows. And so it kind of got me curious. And that's how I started learning about families, about these relationships, uh, different legends and, sort, so, so, and so on. But I never actually just started saying, I want to learn G.R.R. Martin's world. Yeah, it's it's an interesting way to kind of start start it because you come from it with a different aspect when you already know stuff about the world or you have like interest in learning about the world. Like, oh, something about this interests me, so I want to read the book. Or I read the wiki and now I'm here to actually understand what was going on in the wiki. And <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking, you know, on you know the topic of you know getting somebody interested enough to read something like that. Um, you know, there are opportunities in writing fiction where you can have, you know, a block of exposition, but using that principle of getting the audience interested in it before you do it is a good way to go, where you can set up like a mystery or something where you're, you know, a lot of times writing fiction is a series of promises and deliveries where you, you promise something and then later in the book you deliver it. So you can set up this mystery and, and build up to the point where the reader really wants to know about something and then you can kind of dump a little bit um you want to limit the length of course um but that would be a way um you know if it's important to the story you can put in that extra information if you want to um but the tricky part is getting people wanting to know that first i think one of the most interesting ways that you can actually see this done is one of the correct ways to world build in my opinion the the few ways i would say that this is this is good is through Tolkien with the Council of Elrond, which is like, I think it's something like 10,000, almost 11,000 words or something like that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and it's just a giant info dump. And and I brought this up before when people say like, oh, you know, don't never info dump. And you say, oh, what about Council of Elrond? And they go, oh, that doesn't count. It doesn't count because it's a good way to, to do it. Everyone's invested. You're halfway through the book. It's the perfect time to just have like 30 pages just dedicated to info about the world what's going on what's happening etc yeah one word of caution i would say about tolkien and talking about tolkien and info dumping is that when he wrote um the lord of the rings trilogy he was modeling it after the old epics like the uh the poetic and the prose edda um you know the, the old um folklore epics and histories and things like that and they were written that way. Um, so, you know, the Lord of the Rings has a lot of info dumping, but it was intentional. Um, that isn't always the best way to go. Um, it's You can do it, but it's a risky move. And people today have a lot shorter attention spans than they did, what, 70, 80 years ago when that was written? Uh, yeah, 70. Jesus. I think... What I think is uh, more important than necessarily the attention span is more the pacing of your general work you're going for. Because if you have a slower pacing and everything, maybe more like, I don't know, the crime mystery, for example, like where you, it's not necessarily action, it is more you try to solve the mystery um, info dumping can happen a little bit larger in my opinion 
like you find i don't know pieces of an article or i don't know book excerpt or something like this but if you ha- have something heavily action driven where the pacing is mostly that um then you'd probably the attention span of your audience automatically won't be that long because the pacing just is doesn't give it away and then you would want to have it in smaller um bites basically yeah i totally agree with that um you know any piece of fiction should should have a little bit of ebb and flow where the the pace speeds up and slows down a little bit but you want to keep that wavelength narrow where you don't want to have big spikes and valleys so um like Inky said, if you have a really fast-paced book, you don't want to slow way down. You know, have three chapters of fast-paced action, chase scenes, fights, and then have an entire, you know, 5,000-word chapter of exposition. You know, the, the person reading that book so far that's interested in it up to that point isn't going to be interested in that chapter. But what if I want to subvert expectations and just change the pacing like Tolstoy? Subverting expectations is not always a good thing. You just have to look at The Last Jedi to learn that. Ouch. Um, the, this does come to the idea, though, of, about what you want your readers to know and what they should know. And kind of if you have something that's very fast paced and doesn't really slow down to let the lore catch up with itself, then info dumping isn't necessary. At that point, you're doing it for your own catharsis. And it, you could probably go about better with sprinkling some details. Um, I think the pace does have a lot to do with how much world building you can fit in a book. If it's something that takes its time, like the Lord of the Rings, where it, it has these nice hills of tension where it goes up and it releases and it builds up and it releases, it it does it naturally and it lets itself learn about itself as it moves, um, which I think is one thing a lot of people who try to copy Lord of the Rings don't really tend to copy is the idea of tension and pacing in your narrative yeah you have to prepare the audience you have to marinate them like a delicious chicken i mean the best audience is one you can consume so it goes back to that idea of getting them interested in the information before you give it to them and that that building of tension helps with that and that that ebb and flow is really tricky you know that's that's a really difficult part of the craft to master since since we're on that topic and since uh since you are you've you've been published bk how do you in your like kind of your own personal process, how do you go about doing that? We might touch on the tip later, but I feel as though it's like it's easy to say it, but harder to you know do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's kind of hard to explain how to do it too because it depends on the book. Um, you know, I've I'm working on right now writing my twelfth book, and um, I've done it a little bit differently in a lot of them. You know. Some of them have been mysteries, and that's actually kind of the easiest way to do it because you're setting up, um, you know, that mystery where, you know, there's some sort of secret out there. And then when you start revealing information, it's paying off. It's it's part of the satisfaction of reading a mystery um, with, you know, like the straight up, um, you know, like adventure fantasy kind of stuff that I've written a lot of. I avoid the world or the info dumps altogether. And I just space out little tiny details like the smell of crabs in the market or, you know, the, the traders in exotic clothing, stuff like that. Um, you know, just little tiny details. As far as building tension and stuff like that, you know, that goes out of world building more into a narrative topic. But you kind of 
you know, lay clues or have, you know, increasing levels of danger where um, if you think of it kind of like a, like a radio wave or like an EKG graph where, where you've got this line kind of going up and down and kind of building slowly and then a sudden drop builds slowly and a sudden drop where you build up that little tension with a little bit of increasing danger and then something dramatic happens. And then you have a rest, you know, like a half a chapter or something where, where you have a little breathing room and you build up, build up, build up, then something dramatic happens. Um, I, I, I could fill a whole episode, you know, in more detail, but that's kind of like a really, really brief overview of it. Yeah, I mean, I personally like to, uh, I mean, okay, comic is a different medium. Um, so you can't just, show a lot detail on the background for example or um, I mean for the story I'm working on um, I don't have things where I have to explain like cosmology or the magic system or something like this because I simply don't have that or I don't know uh, some magical races or something like this so um, it's more like uh, cultural customs and how the cultures differentiate themselves and things like this. And I think those things are much easier to observe just. And I mean, um, you, especially if you have characters who live in this world and know how it works, um, they don't really need to explain it and it's not too different so um, you can just go by with the ordinary uh, daily lives and you show what's practiced and i think at some point um, i mean readers are not stupid so um, your audience is not stupid so at some point they will realize ah that's why they do this because you show the same thing in a slightly different context or something like that but it's not very essential so you don't need it at the very first time when you show it and things like this makes make it a little bit more easier to me at least so you kind of touch on the idea of like characters doing things and so it brings up the idea of what you have your characters know when you set out to make the story. And if they don't know about a custom, it's a great way to talk about the custom because they might ask a question or fumble it and have to get corrected, or they might just know it. And then it becomes like this. Oh, is this just an ingrained part of their culture to know how to do this specific ceremony or greeting or what have you. Um, but this can also be for larger things. Like if your world does have a cosmography or has a theogony like it's easier for you don't explain it if the character doesn't know it and there's easier ways to explain it if the character does know it yeah it, it's definitely a different approach to how you present that kind of information um the the greeting custom that you mentioned that's a really good example of two ways to handle it where like um just take the the regular north american handshake and i think it's fairly universal um but i could be wrong there um, but just a, a regular handshake, you know, somebody that knows how to do it and you're writing about it, they just walk up and shake hands. And, you know, it's just, that's all you have to do. You, know, you just show that and that happens and, you know, you know what it is. And if, if it's something, uh, let's say if you're using something that's not well known, like you've got your own in-world 
handshake thing, you can just say they do it in greeting to each other. And that's it. That's all you have to say. Versus if a character doesn't know about it, then maybe somebody has to explain it to them. Or maybe they have a social faux pas and that gives you a moment of tension because, you know, now they're in trouble and, you know, somebody's giving them the stink eye or something like that. And, you know, that they have to backtrack and figure out what they did wrong. And then you explain it more in that instance. How you have your characters advance the story and how they understand the plot and the, the setting really kind of shapes together. And you have this interesting dichotomy where you can either leave a series of clues for the character and the audience to find. If you've explained the world enough, if it's simple enough to grasp that way, you can kind of leave little hints or you can dictate to the character or to a set of characters through a lecture style, like a council of Elrond where it's a bunch of people sharing information that everyone else doesn't know. Do you guys have a preference for either version or do you think that they both can work equally well when spelled out correctly? They can both work. And again, it depends on, you know, what kind of story you're writing, like the laying clues and having that sense of discovery that works well towards uh, a mystery kind of book um, where they're having to try to find things out or um, something that feels more like a travelogue, kind of like how Lord of the Rings is, where they're they're discovering these new lands and cultures and things. You can have that moment where somebody like tells them what's going on. I've done that in a few of my books where, um, you know, somebody runs across something that they, they don't know what's going on. And then you have your information source archetype person. You know, they, they go to this certain person and ask them, hey, hey, what's the deal with this? And that person explains to them, you know, what's going on. But again, you're, you're set up in a mystery. You have um in one of my books a guy encounters some vampires and he has no idea what the heck a vampire is and then he ends up running across this guy that does and you know i i don't ever come out and like really say you know this is a vampire you kind of get the point in the book um but he's like on the run and is afraid for his life and there's this tension because there's this fear and this sense of dread and the unknown so when he finally does learn this information from the information source, it, it's kind of a, a release and a catharsis of that tension. Like the payoff being worth the time invested, which I think is always great when you can actually come right. off with it. Right. And it drives the plot forward because after he has that information, then he can take action. Um, he can't take action without the information. So it, it's got to be, like I said, you, you build up and release, but then it's got to also propel the story forward. So... You kind of come to this really interesting crossroads with the idea of like doling out information. And I know that a lot of people on the internet argue about the concept of show versus tell and how you can kind of give off little bits of detail and show just a little bit at a time. And it fits more with the show aspect. Um, I know that using the five senses and little snippets of what people see and understand can really help share and make a fit setting feel deep. Whereas you can use a more prose heavy version of it where you can kind of give more almost info dumps, small sentence sentences clustered together of just little bits of little blurbs of information. It's not really an info dump, but it's not really just a snippet. I think it depends. Um, just what you're, going for or or more what type of concept you're trying to get across because um, if it's something more abstract like a philosoph uh, philosophy or something like this 
then I think it would be interesting, for example, to have people argue about it because so far in my life, I didn't come across a single philosophy or something just in that direction that is slightly more abstract that people do not discuss or basically break into fights uh, about. Um, and um, if you have something uh, smaller, like more custom, like for example, a handshake or um, I don't know, my world, they, or in that country at least, um, they have the custom to light a lantern at night at the porch, which um, for one has the simply um, practical reason that you don't need street lamps and um, but you also have the slightly uh, more mythological or religious reason that you want the ancestors or dead souls uh, of your family to come home and stuff like this and that is simply an action that can take place and I think at some point uh, they are mourning uh, a character's death so they light the lantern for him and through this you get the second layer because you already know that everyone in the village is lighting the lanterns but nobody you don't really get the idea behind it until that point and I think this is what works with action um, yeah I think it depends and yeah I think getting it more lively and yeah real and quotation marks real like how real people would approach this information or get this information yeah to use that primarily yeah i think you just hit on the, the point i was going to make in response to your question was um you know basically you know the whole show versus tell thing is um you know make sure your characters when they're learning information it's in the moment and it's uh something in world and in character so either a dialogue with another character or something they observe like the lantern lighting or like discovering a document or some carvings on a wall in some ancient ruins that you know tells them about you know what's going on with this cosmological thing that they're dealing with um you know ha having them discover it in some way instead of just instead of just narrating it have it something the character doesn't already know and needs to know and then have them discover that and the reader discovers it along with the character the so the idea of having the advocate to discover it along with yeah or you, you know you have your reader's advocate and we talked earlier uh, you mentioned earlier the the hobbits in Lord of the Rings, and the kids in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, right, where these are characters that don't have experience with the world, so everything they see is new. So they're constantly learning new things. So all of the information about the world, um, you know, as they're walking through Narnia and um, meet Mr. Thomas and find out about the White Witch or the White Queen, um, you know, all that. This is all brand new information. So. You know, they're learning that somebody is telling them about something. Somebody is, you know, de describing how things are happening or, you know, when the, the, the White Queen took over and she, you know, brought Eternal Winter to Narnia, you know. That's not something, that's something Mr. Thomas already knows, but the kids from London don't know that. So, so they have to learn that information. And that's one kind of readers advocate you can have. I, I don't know if this is a term anybody else is. I call it the stranger in a strange land. 
Um, you can also have a, a novice in a field. So if you have somebody um, like a, a medical examiner's assistant um, is learning the ins and outs of the criminal autopsy pro process, um, where you can have character foils like with uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes was this deductive genius. Instead of, you know, him just talking to himself or uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle just narrating his deductions, he speaks them to Dr. Watson. He's explaining, um, you know, his elementary here, Watson, and, and this is how I figured it out, blah, blah, blah. Um, or you can always have the village idiot, um, which is just somebody who's in the world, but they just don't know anything about anything. So people have to explain to them, sometimes even to keep them alive. You know, hey, this is how this works. You can't do that. I find um, just from uh, the description you've given from the terms, the one I find a lot is people trying to do Stranger in a Strange Land, but it ends up just being the village idiot and kind of coming off this like, you live in this world. Why don't you already know this? And blah, blah, blah. Here's how you have to, here's what's going on. Yeah, they have to have not been there before. That's that's the Stranger in a Strange Land only works if it actually is a strange land for them. Um, and it doesn't have to be going from London to Narnia. It can be going from the Shire to um, the Prancing Pony in Brie. You know, it can be, you know, 10 leagues away, but if they've never been past Farmer Maggot's farm, that's completely new to them, and they're a stranger in a strange land now. Or what also would work is um, if you have someone who, by accident or willingly, it depends, um, has to kind of cross uh, status or class, especially if they're from, for example, nobility or something like this, and then they find themselves in a situation that is uh, to them abysmal, basically. Um, and then they have, um, which is kind of also the novice in a new field. So they have to get the rope of yeah, how to do, and do the other classes work, basically, and what are those social customs and why can't I do what I usually do? Because uh, usually I would do X, Y, Z, and then know that you can't do this here. So with that kind of concept of having a focus to show the readers the world building, do you think that another approach you could have is kind of obscuring the truth of the setting and having it to either be clarified or thrown, shown through a light that makes them question what they're already thinking is kind of work? Uh, it would kind of work in this aspect because I know that you're kind of having an unreliable show of it when you have someone who doesn't know anything being told because how how can you really verify if it's true if the person has no capability to verify the truth? Um, I know that one of the most common ones would be having a narrator, uh, like an actual overarching narrator, and another one would be having the concept of unreliable narrator where, for instance, your POV character doesn't exactly see the world as one as anyone else would. They have their own biases and believe certain things and how they see them and they can be tricked and fooled. And you can read something as someone doing something, but it's obscured. It's someone else and they just think they see them. So as someone who's studied history and likes to use unreliable narrators or unreliable perspectives... I personally enjoy that approach just because usually 
the world and how we see it is specific to us. And so when we use a character, someone in the world, there's going to be that caveat that they're going to view their world and explain things as they would see it. And that gives you leeway for those bits of part of half-truths and perhaps whether Intesha or not lies about what they're seeing and what it actually is in the world. However, as a reader, I think I would be more invested in a world that I believe at least is being truthful to me and how that turns out as a kind of a point to be used to subvert my expectations in a, in a satisfyingly um, a satisfying way for the narrative. I enjoy that. But constantly being told that, um, and I'm guilty of this as a DM too, I, I've realized, of thinking or making it seem like this is how it is, but wait, as you learn more, it's so-and-so. It can become frustrating if that is all that someone exposed to your world constantly gets, is that they don't know what to believe at that point. Because ultimately, you don't want to betray your audience too many times, because then they can't really trust this narrator more. And so it makes it hard to really invest in the world they're witnessing. Yeah, I'm absolutely with Immaculate. Uh, I personally really, really enjoy it because then I, to my experience, not a lot of people actually do this, and especially when it comes to like history or politics. I think this is major fields where this happens all the time and where nobody really writes about it or um, world builds this into their setting and rather there is like there's that one universal uh, history which I kind of find boring to be honest um, but I also I mean I think it depends also a bit on for example if you have like your deities who actually are real and participate in your world building basically and the history so you have something kind of like a truth or it's more like in our world where everything is a bit unclear and um, everything depends on the viewpoint um, I think this as I said before, that works more with like things that are more abstract concepts or or more like history uh, or, or like things that generally depends on the relationships, uh, not necessarily like I don't know uh, whether gravity exists or not. Like the apple is gonna fall, that's just gonna happen, and. Um, yeah, I think it's more like, um, is this history true or not? And yeah, I think that is more, I think, to work into your work um, instead of like rather universal truths. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's You can have some obscurity because like real life did have obscurity and, and news was always whoever told you first was generally the one telling the truth and you have the bias of the victor writes history and all those other great maxims but the other point touched upon was you can't lie to your audience every time and expect them to stay with you um truth is devaluated 
every time you tell a lie. And the more you lie, the more the truth and the desire to know it is lost just a little bit by little bit. And you have to balance that. You do. You can tell small truths and they can just be real and factual and that that works. Not everything needs to be obscured and different. You'll lose interest that way. And on the other end, having some ambiguity in your creation mythos, your background lore, whatever you want to call it, your theogony, then having people come up to their own conclusions of it can be twice as interesting when you find out. Like someone could guess it right. Other people could come up with wild theories like it's a giant maggot and it exploded and all the gods are just the flies from its corpse like be terrifying and disgusting it's like that's not that is not how reality is i refuse to believe that that's what happened at creation and then randomly it could be but you leave it obscured and ambiguous and people will come to their own conclusions as to what the truth is always because that's what we do we we read something and we believe something yeah, the, the unreliable narrators have definitely a very useful tool to use with fiction, or even you know with, with uh, you know DMing like a role playing game. Um, you can you know kind of you know have red herrings and things like that for your players. The points made really good. You know, not to um, you know try to say you know what's universally accepted as true is untrue. You know, don't you know break the laws of gravity or something like that. And also, don't do it repetitively. You know, save it for the big aha moment. Um, you know, it works really well where, you know, you're, you know, you lay out this whole story and then you have this big moment where it's like this reveal that, you know, everything wasn't what it seemed. Um, Fight Club is a really good example that anybody that's seen that movie, um, you know, I won't spoil it if you haven't, but um, that has a great moment where it's like, oh, this wasn't what it seemed. It's a good way, you know, that deals with, you know, mental illness is a good way to use the unreliable narrator. You know, somebody that's, uh, discovering something new and they don't quite understand what's going on. You know, that, that's a good way to use their own reliable narrator. Um, it, it can be really, really effective. And a lot of the movies, like with the, the big twist endings or folks with big twist endings, a lot of times they'll use that. Though I think it can work in many, many ways. Like, um, for example, just someone withholding information and simple things like this. I think just in normal life we have so many misunderstandings and different just different opinions because we have a different moral compass for example and one prioritizes one thing whereas someone else does something else and i think just from that alone you have different views uh different um, yeah values and evaluations and I don't know, I think my, my favorite example is just like scholars uh, discussing whether or not the text they're looking at is um, a hoax or not, or if it is, um, if this god can even be called a god or something silly as that. And I think this just... Yeah, it's basically the we imagine a lot of things and just from there can be there can come a lot from. Now, what do you guys believe is an an interesting way in your opinion to display things 
that have happened in your setting background stuff not not anything directly related to current events in the narrative or the world if you're just world building but things like the cosmography the theogony how all the background myths and legends came to be are they just myths and legends or are they truths i think surroundings and terrain things that a character um perhaps your narrator would interact with can make relaying that information feel a bit more natural almost like a how I'd, how I would re- liken it is uh is being a tourist and I don't know if you guys have but like going to let's say I don't know France or maybe Italy or Greece and you're in those places these large temples that were built um temples and churches that were built at a different time um perhaps for a different pantheon of gods than what most people uh worship nowadays and there'd be like a tour guide just in the corner leading a group that you're not part of, but you can at least kind of gather around the out the outskirts of this group, listening in on a story. And that'd be one way that a character who is new to a place can interact is overhearing things and asking people, what, what is this or who's that? That sort of thing that's a bit more personal, a bit more connected to a living being, as opposed to just having the text say, and so... Joe Makiro stepped into the temple of Delaria, the goddess of light and so-and-so. It's, it makes it more compelling in that sense. Yeah, and you can communicate a lot of that through, uh, like when it comes to cosmology and myths and legends, um, through art. I actually wrote an article for the magazine uh, recently that came out in our arts issue uh, talking about that, about how um, you know re- religious ideas and figures kind of become part of everyday life through art and it can be a statue and engravings inscriptions in a temple down to like a piece of pottery you know with um you know heroes of myth and legend on it um and then on the you know as far as far as you know your myths and legends versus like if you want actual real gods that actually play a part in things um you, you can make them characters in the book you can do something like they did with um in the Forgotten Realms when they had the Gods of War, uh, the Time of Troubles, where there was actually avatars of the gods actually on, you know, boots on the ground, you know, playing a part in what was happening. So if you if you want to make the gods real and make it really obvious that they're real, you kind of have them take a play, take a role in the story. Um, but otherwise, it's just myths and legends, you know, portray, you know, that backstory, the history and all that, you know, through artwork or um, traditions, festivals you know, daily routines people have, you know, prayers before a meal, something like that. There's a lot of different ways you you can dig into that, you know, just a little tiny tidbits of everyday life. Um, yeah, um, I basically go with what BK said. Um, at least for my world building, I, uh, I really don't need so much about the, um, or show much about the religion, for example, or, um, at least cosmology and stuff like that. So it's more like um, since my protagonists are mostly like teenagers, uh, or, yeah, young adults basically, they will have, I don't know, uh, they go to festivals and dances and um, tell each other ghost stories and, or I don't know, uh, I mean, 
I have a protagonist who is very interested in poetry and literature. So they're just those things where they um, reinterpret uh, old stories in plays and things like that. So it's more real and uh, tangible. And yeah, also um, just simple rites like the healers um, perform a short prayer before they go into an operation um, or a surgery, things like that. So, or travelers, uh, when they come upon a, a shrine, just make a short prayer and offer. Um, yeah, just small things and things that happen to actual people I find more interesting and then you can also just hand out clues and the picture builds itself over time so you don't really need the entire story around it. So it seems like all of you kind of agree that it's using small pieces to kind of tell the myth about it and like lore around it than rather trying to really tackle the idea of it if it is one or the other way. Um, I will say, BK, that I, I love The Time of Troubles and it's my favorite Forgotten Realms storyline. I think I've said it before and I'll probably say it a couple more times before I'm dead. It is a good story. I, I love how they went about it. It's so cool. Just the gods coming down, get acting as avatars and getting their butts kicked as they try to climb back to the top. It's just a cool visceral story that just definitively shows, yeah, the gods are real and they're awful people. It's got a very um, Greek mythology kind of feel to it, I think. Mm, definitely agree. And it just has like that old world, like like god epic myth that just wrapped up inside it. It's It was really well done. It's hard to top that once you do something at that level, though. Exactly. You run into the, the, the shonen problem where the escalation never stops and you get to a point where it just becomes ridiculous because you have this like peak story where everything is as powerful as it ever could possibly get and now you're just going to go back to what it was before yeah that's one thing i tell people don't start um yeah i saw um i can't remember exactly it was a manuscript recently and and the first chapter was this huge epic battle and i read it i was like oh this is amazing and i i talked to the author i was like well how are you going to top that i'm like well no that's you know the most exciting thing that happens in the book really is the first chapter. I'm like, no, that's going to be the last chapter. So you, you don't, you definitely don't want to start. And like, if you're going to do a series, you know, starting with, you know, God's trouncing each other is not the way to start it. You know, that's something you build up towards. Definitely agree. It's odd to think that people like, will we'll start with the most interesting part first or like, Oh, this, this doesn't really have that many. It's just an adventure story. It's not really battles in it. And it's like, if you started with a giant God slaying battle. Why would you, why would you leave with something so awesome and not just have it like interwoven in the story itself with information about it instead of front loading it all? Yeah, you, you want to have a good hook at the beginning of the story. You want to have something exciting to drag people into it. Um, but you got to be able to top it later. So if you put it the best you can possibly think of in the beginning, then you know, there's no way to go from there but down. So, BK, I know that we've kind of put you on the spot quite a bit tonight with asking some questions. Definitely has the most prominent member for this uh, type of discussion due to you being a publisher. Um, do you have any specific tips that you'd like to give anyone out there that's looking to publish their material when it comes to this topic? 
Yeah, I do. Um, I want to preface this, though, by saying that I'm actually going to quote um, Captain Barbosa from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and say that the code is really more what you would call guidelines than actual rules. Um, I say that for writing. I say it for editing. Um, there's always an exception. But I've got a few tips of, you know, more often than not, this is going to make your fiction come out um, more interesting and flow smoother. Um, the first one, and this is a big one for me, is don't use your prologue to info dump world building. And you know, while we're talking about world dumps, um, a lot of people are confused or, or not really aware of what prologues are actually supposed to accomplish in a book. Um, and of course, you don't always need a prologue. Plenty of books get along fine without them. Um, but the big point of a prologue is to promise something that's going to come later. So if you have a book that's got a lot of action or a really grand scope, but you're going to start with, um, you know, your everyday Joe farmhand on the farm and his everyday life before you get into that, the prologue is a good way to show, you know, something interesting, something, you know, like I said, you want to hook your reader. So showing something exciting to give them a promise of this book is going to be exciting later, just bear with me for a couple chapters while I build up to it. That's the purpose of a prologue. It shouldn't be an info dump. It shouldn't be um, a wiki entry on the cosmology of your world or anything like that. Second thing is if the character can't see, smell, touch, smell, or hear something, you probably shouldn't be writing it. Um, if your character isn't directly, and we talked about this a bit earlier, if you know they're not directly experiencing something, um, you want the reader to experience it through your character's perspective. So if the character isn't experiencing something, it shouldn't be in there. You're expositing or you're info dumping if you're doing that. Now, if uh, characters know something that's a common, commonly known fact, they shouldn't be discussing it with each other. It's just going to come across as you're dumbing it down or you're just, you know, you're treating, your reader's going to feel like you think they're dumb. So if, you know, a phone rings and somebody's like, the phone's ringing, the other guy's like, I know the phone's ringing, I can hear it. Yeah, it's, that's kind of a simple example, but, um, you know, it's stuff that people should know it shouldn't be in dialogue, you know, if, if it's a common fact. And another thing is with your world building and going back to where we started with the iceberg principle, where you have this big foundation, you just want to show them little details. The best way to do that uh, is a really simple sentence. Show the results, not the reasons. Um, and a good, good example of how to use this, I have a book where there's a bunch of dwarves in a mountain, and I had almost 500 words of describing how there was this ventilation system, these pipes running through the mountain, and so all the smoke from their cooking fires and the forges and stuff, instead of building up inside the city, would run through these pipes and be vented out to the surface. Um, it was like, you know, two whole pages of the book, and, you know, a, a beta reader, you know, pointed out to me that it was extremely boring, and it just completely cut the pace of the book. So that two pages became smoke from the torch wafted through a bronze pipe jutting from the wall. That's it. So again, showing the results, not the reasons. You don't have to explain why something is there. Just show that it's there in context, and it should make sense to your reader. Those all are actually really good uh, tips for for writing, especially when it comes to the the senses one. I think a lot of people forget to like dial it back. Like we don't need to know everything, and if it's not pertinent in some way, like if the if they can't hear music that makes them think of a tune from a faraway land, then don't really 
talk about a tune from a faraway land. It's or a song or something. Make them exactly, yeah. hear something. Yeah. Yeah, and don't forget all five senses. That that's the advantage that books have over movies. Because with movies, you've got sight and sound. You've only got two senses. So the reason why movies haven't completely replaced books is because you can get into things like uh, what they smell, what something feels like when they touch it, what something um, so they can hear, they can see it in the movie, but but the smell and the touch, you know, th those are things that you don't get with a movie, but you can get with a book. So make sure you use all of them. Um, and also like your internal monologue, you know, the, the thoughts and reflections and their reaction to something they might not speak aloud, but they're like something happens or like, oh, that makes me feel blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, th those are where a book can really shine. Now, do you feel that in at least some regards, like George R. R. Martin's style, I know that a lot of people give him a lot of flack for having so many feasts and stuff in it, but you really kind of get this level of smell and, and taste that you just, you don't otherwise get in other books. Like a lot of other fantasy books just don't have tastes and scents in them. And I find that he does, he just fills it with it. Yeah, and that gives you gives you a sense of culture. Um, you know, I, I I actually I do that in some of my books where I've got you know feasts or meals and stuff. You know, I don't do it as much as he does. Um, I haven't written as many words as he has either, though. I don't think I'm pretty sure. But yeah, you can you know, get into the culture like like my dwarves under the mountain. You know, they don't have pigs and cows and stuff, so they were eating these giant spiders. So you, know, you you get a sense of, you know, this culture is different from ours, and this is why, and it just makes sense. And, and that, that's, food is such an important part, part of every culture. You know, you look at, you know, people travel around the world, what's the first thing they do? Like, oh, what's the local cuisine like? That's the first thing you want to know for most people. You know, I'm a fat kid, so maybe that's just me. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that gives you a sense of the culture and then what it's like to live in that place and, and what the the daily life is like and you know what's important to people and you know whether it's just seared and thrown on a slab and they don't care or if it's all done up all fancy and pretty you know like the french do um gives you a sense of how important you know presentation and aesthetics are to a culture versus just i have to eat so i don't die you know if it's a utilitarian culture you know it might be that way oh what comes to my mind, just by um, with mentioning of smell, um, Patrick Suskin did an extraordinary, excellent job with the parfum. I know it's not really fantasy, but um, if you want to get it, just of how to portray your world through smell, um, this is an excellent read. Um, then don't watch the movie because it's terrible, but um, or yeah, um, but the book is really, really good in that regard. I find uh, another good series for that is Red Wall, which always talks about food and drink and how it tastes and smells. And it, it does add something you, you, you kind of remember it when it happens a lot in the series, I think. And it is something that makes you stand out a little bit because of how much it is ignored, I feel. I think it depends a lot on the genre too. Like I, I think you see it more in like epic fantasy, and epic fantasy usually is a slower pace and it takes its time and you know it has built into the pacing to explore those things. Um, versus like your your contemporary stuff, even contemporary fantasy, where it's real world kind of stuff, 
Yeah, you run down to the corner burger joint and pick up a burger and you know eat it in the car. Nobody cares. You know, so you don't write about that kind of stuff. So I think when you're dealing with these different cultures, is where it gets interesting. Though I must say, um, I really like um, how taste and smell or also um, touch can add to an atmosphere. I think it's just um, senses we don't pay attention to a lot. So having heightened sense to it makes your general work feel more special, in my opinion, at least. I think this is also why I like the perfume so much. Um, yeah, I think just if you think about a burger, I mean, it's usually not just a burger. It's like a greasy um, thing that's probably, yeah, not very healthy. And just getting that through um, just the feel of it and, and the situation um, can add to it a lot. Yeah, that's a good point where you can take something mundane and make it interesting by focusing on you know those sensations that people don't always focus on so you know if you wanted to really you know like use the burger and show that this character is really unhealthy or you know just make them seem disgusting you know have like the grease dripping down their hand and you know this you know the smell of the meat and stuff like that you know the, the kind of and the way you word it too you know like the this charred flesh of this dead animal or something like that you know just the way you word things and um something like walking through a tunnel um, and this is good for like our our D and D GMs. Um, you know, it's not just dark, but you know, what's the smell like? Is it musty? Does it have, um, you know, mold in it? It's got the smell of mold, or the walls sticky, or wet, or slimy. You know, those different sensations. You know, really dive you into it a lot more than just it's dark. Do you guys have any final remarks for people on the subject of getting trapped in your realism or in dealing with info dumps? I think the, the big takeaway, you know, I don't really have anything to add because we covered so much. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the big takeaway, you know, the big point that all of us agreed on and we talked about a few times um, is just spreading it out, pulling it out in little details. Um, just feed, feed your audience, you know, little snippets at a time from the character's perspective. Um, I, I think that's the biggest point that we touched on, and that's probably the biggest point of advice you can you can give somebody on, you know, how not to info dump. I think um, something that might add a little bit to it is to uh, yeah, to connect different world building aspects. Like if you have a type of lore, like, I don't know, the eternal battle of the war gods or something like this, and then don't just keep it within the religion, but maybe have a play or um, some form of, of literature that deals with it that people are familiar with and maybe even have to read in school or something and then can refer to it or this new interpretation that is different to what they usually um, portray the gods you know, stuff like this and just interconnecting your world that usually makes it 
easier um, to, first of all, come up with things and also to just not role build as much as you seemingly do because you just need to randomly throw in, I, uh, X, Y um, wrote this and that. Did you read that? And now nah, I don't like the portrayal of Z. Um, things like this and um, also giving characters opinions on things can make things more interesting. Um, yeah, and as BK said, spreading it out, um, adjusting it to the pace of your work. Um, I think that's it, <laughs> mostly. Is the Machinate alive? I'm still here. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything to add. It's like, oh, oh, bruh. <laughs> Good talk. I think that I would just have to add that don't let yourself get trapped in it. Don't let yourself fall into this cycle where I need more. I need to know more. I need to show more. I need, to, I need to know everything about my world, even if I'm not going to show it. I need to know how gravity works and the atomic structure of magic. And it, it doesn't matter. Leave it to the imagination of your reader. Leave it to just a quick sentence about a bronze pipe in a mountain. It's okay. That's what people want. That's what they look for. They, they go, I like that. And then they move on. And if you have 16 pages about the subatomic formula needed to even begin contemplating magic, no one's going to care because no one's studying your magic to practice magic. They're doing it because it's part of what you're giving them to read. Just take it easy. I will leave you with a quote from Kenneth Graham, who is the author of The Wind in the Willows. All this he saw for one moment breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still, as he looked, he lived, and still, as he lived, he wondered. Thank you. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media, or feel free to come chat with us on the World Building Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep world building. <laughs> <laughs>